Father, I'm so thankful that you're in the business of changing hearts and changing lives. You've changed my life. you changed my heart. That can be said for a lot of different people in this room, that you're in the business of changing us. I pray that this morning that you would help us to understand more and more what it means to be in pursuit of your will in our life, that you might use us as your instruments to bring about change in our world. For it's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, back in the day, (laughs) when I was a youth minister in Houston, Texas, uh, we had this huge event that we call the Mud Bowl. What we did is I had a farmer in our church, and we went out to his farm, and the night before, he had plowed up a huge patch of land, maybe almost as big as this, this auditorium, and had run water on it all night long and let it just get really ooey-gooey muddy. And so we went to play in the mud, all right? And the first thing we did is we played tug-of-war. We got this long rope, and half the kids were on one side of the mud hole, the other half on the other, and, you know, pull and pull and pull until one group was in the mud. And then from that point on, it was just, you know, we played tag football, in the, uh, touch football in the mud, we, all sorts of things. It was just, you know, mud from here to there. Uh, tug-of-war is a great picture of discovering and doing God's will. Because as you seek to know God's will, and then you make the determination, I'm going to do God's will, uh, there's going to be a, a battle going on. There's going to be a tug of war going on. Um, you know, is it going to be God's will? Or is it going to be my will that, that's going to be done? You know, you know, do I really want to do God's will? Or is it kind of what I want to do? Um, remember what Jesus said? He says, you cannot serve two masters. Now, I know that he was talking about serving God or serving materialism. But the same thought can can be used to talk about the will of God. And am I going to do my will or am I going to do God's will? Do I want my plans or do I want God's plans? It really comes down to a question of what's at the center of my life, what's at the center of my heart, um, and what's at the center of your heart and your life. Is it my will or is it God's will? Um, Typically, folks, and let's just be honest, okay? Typically, we're pretty self-centered. Would you agree with that? Yeah, we we kind of are. We're focused on ourselves, focused on our plans and our agenda, the way of doing things. and, and, And we always think that our way is the best. And so we find ourselves filled with pride and, and, um, self-confidence. Uh, we think that, you know, we can handle this. Whatever comes in life, we can kind of handle this. We think that we don't need anybody else in our life. Um, and sometimes we don't think we need God in our life. I got this. I can handle this. I can do this. Uh, you know, that's the kind of life that most people live. They're independent of God and, uh, and God's glory. And so it's a self-centered kind of life. But the fact of the matter is, when we put God at the center of our life, uh, our confidence is in God. It's not in ourselves. And so we recognize how absolutely dependent we are upon God and His ability and His provision in our life. And so we're focused on God and, and what He's doing. And we live our life with humility. 
humbling ourselves before God. And, uh, you know, whenever we're out, we're, you know, we're seeking God's kingdom first and foremost in our life. And when we begin to see life from God's perspective, it changes everything. It's not our perspective, but it's God's perspective. That's the kind of God-centered life that God really wants for you and, and for me. So this morning, I want us to just kind of contrast these two approaches to life of being self-centered or of being God-centered in our life. Uh, because that's important as we're going to, you know, if we're trying to discover and to do God's will, uh, we have to de- really determine, are we going to be self-centered or are we going to be God-centered in that? So let's start by looking at the usual approach. The usual approach, and okay, let's be honest, our usual approach, okay, is that um, we make our own decisions. Um, we create our own plans. We believe that our way is best. And, <clears throat> you know, if we decide, hey, I'm going to serve God, we want to serve God on our terms. We want to serve in our way, you know, and so what we do, we, we dream up what we want to do for God, and then what do we do? We pray, oh God, bless our plans, right? Isn't that true? Look at this verse from Proverbs 19. It says, you can make many plans, but the Lord's purpose will prevail. God says, make all the plans you want. But my purpose is the one that will prevail. See, if you think about it, our plans are carried out in our power, right? It's what we can do. It's our abilities there. God's purposes are carried out with God's power. Which one do you think is the better deal there? Our power or God's power? Yeah. Let me give you two examples from the Old Testament that kind of will illustrate the difference between following our plans and following God's plans. Let's, let's go back to, to Noah. You know, the Bible's record is that Noah was a righteous man. But Noah lived among unrighteousness, among wickedness. And I'm sure that that was very uncomfortable for Noah. He was trying to follow God, and yet the people around him were going in the opposite direction. Now, how do you think Noah might have approached that? Uh, You know, here I am, I'm God's representative here on the earth, and everybody around me is is falling away. How am I going to handle this? He could have chosen to be isolated, He said, I'm just going to pull back. I'm not going to do anything. Or he might have gotten this great idea that, you know what, I'm going to be God's champion here. And he'd go around telling everybody, that's wrong to do. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. You know, how effective would he have been? Not very effective, right? God had a better plan. God comes along and he says, okay, Noah, I'm about to send rain that's going to create a flood that's going to destroy everybody but you and your family. Now, first of all, Noah's going to say, rain? What, what's that? Because, you know, the Bible tells us that it had never rained until the flood came, okay? Uh, I want you to build a boat. A boat, what's that, you know? Uh, so Noah had all these questions, but God had a different plan. And, and God's purpose overrode the plans of Noah. Noah thought, you know, I could just go around here and tell everybody they're wrong. 
Uh, but God had something different in mind. See, understanding what God is about to do in, in the place where I am is more important than me telling God what I want to do. You understanding what God is about to do where you are is more important than you telling God what you want to do. Let's look at at the example of Moses. And we talked about him last week. But Moses is a great example of somebody who, um, first of all, he wanted to, to help his people out. He somehow had come to understand, because if you remember, even though he was raised in Pharaoh's home, the person who was raising him as his governess was his biological mother. And so she shared with him, hey, you're not Egyptian, you're a Hebrew. And as a Hebrew, you worship God. And so Moses grew up understanding that he was a part of the Hebrew people. And had heard the stories of God's call of Abraham on his life and and how God was building a great nation. And so Moses was very aware that where the Israelite people were at that point in time in, in, in their lives, in their history, was not where God wanted them to be. That was kind of a detour because of a famine. And so Moses got this idea that I am single-handedly going to deliver the nation of Israel out of slavery. And we read about that in Exodus chapter 2. It says, many years later when Moses had grown up, he went out to visit his own people the Hebrews, and he saw how hard they were forced to work. And during his visit, he saw an Egyptian beating one of his fellow Hebrews. After looking in all directions to make sure that nobody was watching, Moses killed the Egyptian and he hid the body in the sand. The next day, Moses went out to visit his people again. He saw two Hebrew men fighting. Why are you beating up your friend, Moses said to the one who had started the fight. The man replied, Who appointed you to be our prince and our judge? Are you going to kill me the way that you killed that Egyptian yesterday? Then Moses was afraid, thinking, everyone knows what I did. And sure enough, Pharaoh heard what had happened and he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. When Moses arrived in Midian, he sat down beside a well and thus began 40 years of nothingness in his life, okay? He had failed miserably. and But think about it. Here's Moses' plan. I'm going to deliver these people, but he would have done it against the will of Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And can you imagine the bloodshed that would occur as he tried to move those thousands and thousands of people out from Egypt when they didn't want to let them go? It would have been a bloodbath. He failed miserably. God, though, had a different plan. He brought Pharaoh to the point where Pharaoh actually threw the people out of Egypt. It wasn't Moses fighting his way out of Egypt. It was Pharaoh throwing them out of Egypt. Chapter 12 of Exodus says, Pharaoh sent for Moses and Aaron during the night. He says, get out, he ordered. Leave my, my people. Take the rest of the Israelites with you. Go and worship the Lord as you have requested. Take your flocks and herds as you've said and be gone. Go, but bless me as you leave. All the Egyptians urged the people of Israel to get out of the land as quickly as possible. For they thought, we will all die if these Israelites stay here. The Israelites uh, took 
their bread dough before the yeast was added. They wrapped their kneading board in the cloaks, in their cloaks, and carried them on their shoulders. And the people of Israel did as Moses had instructed. They asked the Egyptians for clothing and articles of silver and gold. The Lord caused the Egyptians to look favorably on the Israelites, and they gave the Israelites whatever they asked for. So they stripped the Egyptians of their wealth. So here is, instead of leaving with much bloodshed, they left with much plunder. They robbed Egypt of all her gold and silver and fine clothing. That's an illustration of God's plan. And how God's plan is always better than our plans. Let me just mention one other story. God had a plan for the children of Israel to go into the land of promise. He had prepared for them. They sent 12 spies out to check out the land. The spies came back and said, oh, this is a great land. This is a wonderful place. But there's a little problem. Well, it's really actually a large problem. There are giants in the land, okay? And we can't fight them. Well, they're going to kill us. We can't do this. And so 10 of the spies said, we're not going to go. And the rest of the children of Israel gathered around and said, oh, woe is me. Let's go back to Egypt. We had it better back in slavery than we're just going to die out here. They rebelled against God's plan. As a result, they were going to spend 40 years just wandering in the wilderness until every person in that generation died because of their unbelief toward God. Well, they said, okay, well... I guess we've blown it. We've messed up. We probably shouldn't have done that. So we've got a better idea. We're not going to follow God's idea, but we've got a better idea. Let's get up tomorrow morning, and we're going to send our troops in, and we're going to conquer the land because that's what we were supposed to do in the first place. And they, they went into the land or headed toward the land to, to fight uh, those who were, you know, there, and they got their tails beat. And they came to realize we could have done it God's way, When we try to do it our way, it didn't work. Friends, that's kind of how it is when we try to do God's work in our way. When we think we've got it better, we know better, we go and we try to do something and we always fall flat on our face. God's plans are so much better than our plans. Listen to this uh, summary statement from Psalm 81 and verse 13 and 14. And it's talking about this incident where they they believed the ten spies and didn't believe the two spies. It said, God is well able to let us take the land. And this is what the psalmist said, God speaking. He says, oh, that my people would listen to me. Oh, that Israel would follow me walking in my path. How quickly I would then subdue their enemies. How soon my hands would be upon their foes. God said, if you'd have done it my way, you would have quickly been in the land of promise. But because they didn't believe, because they had their own plan, they had their own notion, they ended up 40 years. And he says how quickly it would be. See, we know that intellectually that God's plans are always best, don't we? But boy, when it comes to doing it, we have great difficulty We have difficulty trusting that, okay, God, your plan is better. We know that up here, but somehow it doesn't doesn't relate to our feet, doesn't communicate down to our feet that we ought to do things God's way. Um, Let me just share with you from my own personal experience. 
Back in 1978, when I was in youth ministry down in Houston, I felt that, you know, let's have a youth revival. Back then, youth revivals were the big thing, you know, and we were going to bring in a a youth evangelist and, uh, you know, he's going to be there Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and and, you know, he was going to preach. Maybe we'd bring in a musician. And, and we'd just have this great thing, youth-led revival. So the, the gentleman, the young man that, that I contacted to come and, hey, why don't you come and bring this revival for us, was a young man who had grown up in that church and had gone to high school in, the, in that section of Houston. And uh, he and I began praying about, okay, we want God, we want you to really work, and we want to see people, you know, young people come to the Lord and so forth. And God began taking our little plan and he began kind of expanding it, kind of growing it and growing it and growing it. Uh, we, we said, well, you know what? Let's see if we can get a really cool music group, praise team. I guess that's what you'd have called them back. They didn't call them back. It would have been a band, you know to come and to, and to lead worship. And so uh, we found one of the, the leading, you know, uh, bands that were going on in Houston. And they said, yeah, we can come Friday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, Sunday night, and we can lead the music. And that was good, you know. Um, I didn't have any money in the budget to start with. So I had to go to the finance team and said, ah, you know, could you give us a little money? To, we'd really like this. To, and they said, well, how about, and they gave us a figure, and it was about three times more than what I thought. And I thought, this must be God, you know? You know, so we got this money. And and then we had this idea, okay, well, what if we got a, a Christian athlete to come in, give his testimony? Well, that'd be cool to do. Well, uh, somebody had a contact with a guy by the name of Neil Jeffries, who had who had uh, quarterbacked Baylor University to Cotton Bowl victory and Southwest Conference victory back in 19... 19- uh, 77, somewhere like that. He was now quarterback at that time with San Diego Chargers and all that. And uh, he agreed to come. And he, I can be there Friday night. I can be there Saturday. I can be there Sunday morning. Uh, but I got a commitment on Monday. So I got to be gone. Well, God began to say, you know what? You're dreaming too small. Let's, let's get bigger with your dream. So he said, well, what if we could get in with some of the athletes in the high schools? Well, what if we could, how about having a breakfast on Monday morning for the athletes at Waldrop High School? That's where this evangelist had gone to high school. Um, that sounds like a good deal. You know, we could do that. But we don't have anybody to speak to them. You know, our, our, our athletes going home. So um, I made a call to the local Houston FCA uh, headquarters, and they said, yeah, we just happened to have a guy by the name of Bill Curry, who's a starting strong safety for the Houston Oilers, and he's a fine Christian. He's available. He can come speak on Monday morning. All right, that sounds good, you know. That's really good. Um, well, what about the other high school, Scarborough High School? wonder if we could get them to come on Tuesday morning. Okay, let's see if we can pull that off. We got a cafeteria in the area that wasn't open for breakfast, and they agreed to serve breakfast on both days uh, for a, just a ridiculous price, like 50 cents a head or something like that. It was just astronomically cheap, you know. And so we planned to do that. And, and then we thought, well, what if we had 
some assemblies in the school. Now, this is in the 1970s, this idea of no prayer in schools and separation church state was just, you know, it was just burgeoning. You weren't supposed to do this. Well, just so happened that the principal of Waldrop High School was my 12th grade Sunday school teacher in my youth group. And he says, yeah, he says, we can do this. We'll have a chapel service, I mean, a, a, an assembly service, and it will make it voluntary. The kids can get out of class and come to the, to the auditorium, and you can do whatever you want to with them, or they can stay in class. It's their choice, you know. Well, we said, well, we don't have a music group because these guys that we had on the weekend are all working, and they have regular jobs, and what are we going to do? We've made a call to a local Christian radio station. Just so happened that a guy by the name of Sherman Andrus. Now, I'm really dating myself, okay? Sherman Andrus was with a group called Andrus Blackwood and Company. Terry Blackwood used to be with the, the Imperials back in the day, way back. This is Southern Gospel groups, okay? He was available. So we had breakfast for about 80 kids from one high school, 60 kids from another high school. We shared the gospel with them. We gave an invitation. We had assemblies on uh, Monday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon in both high schools. And the school was packed. Why would a kid want to stay in class when he could go hear music and see an athlete, you know, a guy from the Houston Oilers and all that? See, what is, my plans were so puny. God had something so much bigger. Because when God wants to work, he works in ways that he gets the glory. When I work, what happens? I get the glory. So it's, I'm doing it again in either God's power or I'm doing it in my power. Which do you think is the better deal? It's always God's power. Always God's power. <clears throat> you know, the, Paul writing in, in 1 Corinthians says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. We can't even begin to imagine what God would do. If we would follow his plans and not our plans. Um, Henry Blackaby in, in the book Experiencing God says this. He says, God will accomplish more in six months through a people who are totally yielded to him than we could in 60 years without him. And I believe that. That's true. I mean, afterwards, after all, what did Jesus said? He said, for, for apart from me, you can do Nothing. Folks, those aren't just pleasant sounding words. That is hard truth. Self-centered plans never work. <clears throat> you know, we have our plans and that's about all we have. Uh, we have our ideas that we're going to carry out in our own power. And, and so what do we do? We barge ahead. And oftentimes we fall flat on our face. And then we're amazed. Hey, my plans didn't work. What's the deal here? Folks, I've come to realize that in my power, I can't do much. Uh, and when I do carry out my plans, who gets the glory? Generally me, right? Yeah. So it's my plans, my power, my glory. And that's far from what God desires from us. So who's going to be the center of my life? If I put me in the center, I don't get much in return for that. But let's look at the correct approach. See, God-centered plans always begin with God. 
They always carry with them God's power. And they always end in his glory. So it's God's plans, God's power, God's glory. See, that's the correct approach because it always begins with God. You know, that's a, that's a continual theme in Scripture that, that God takes the initiative in his activity with people. I mean, think about it. God came to Noah, said, this is what I'm about to do. God came to Abram while he was still in, his, in the land of his fathers. And he says, this is what I'm going to do. I want you to follow me. He, he came to Moses, <coughs> spoke to him. Do him out of a burning bush. He came to David after, after God had rejected David's older brothers. He finally found David, he's the youngest, and he says, you're going to be my man. Uh, God confronted Paul when he was headed on the road to Damascus on a seek and destroy mission of, for Christians. And so every time that God did something, he had in mind what he wanted to do, some kind of result that would end in his glory. I mean, for Noah, it was a fresh start. For, for Abram, it was the beginning of a nation. For Moses, it was the liberation of a nation. For David, it was the exaltation of a nation. For Paul, it was the gospel proclamation to a Gentile world. And folks, I want you to know that God is still at work in our day and in age. God hasn't, you know, his activity in this world didn't stop with the biblical times. God is still working. Uh, you look at it each and every day. There are thousands of people worldwide who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. It is the most remarkable thing that God is doing in our world. That people are finding Jesus Christ by the thousands each and every day. In places that you and I would never even begin to imagine. In places in, in Iraq. In China. In Southeast Asia, people are finding Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. So God is at work. He's at work in our nation. He's calling people back to faith in himself. He's at work in our town. He's working our church. He's at work in our families. He's at work in your heart. Folks, you are not here this morning by accident. God has drawn you here this morning because he wants to do a work in your life. He's up to something in your life. And he wants to do his work through us. And so when he invites us to join him, it's going to require some adjustment on our part. We're, we're going to have to adjust our thinking here. Because, and for many of us, that's going to be a radical adjustment. Uh, see, we, when we have these self-centered plans, we kind of think of God as kind of our servant. Okay, We tell him what we want him to do. And then we kind of expect God to adjust his plans and his agenda to fit our needs, right? Um, that's a wrong approach. Jesus talked about that in Luke chapter 17. He said, when a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal. Put your apron on. Serve me while I eat. Then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. We don't dictate to God what we want him to do. Instead, we say to God, we're your humble servants. Use us any way that you choose to. You see, when we're God-centered, we begin to see ourselves as his servants. He's not our servant. We're his servants. And we just, became, we just become clay in his hands. 
for him to mold and shape and use us any way he chooses to. So we adjust our lives to him rather than asking God, hey, we need you to adjust to us and our plans, okay? So the third thing I just want to mention is that God is at work. And I really do sense this. Um, I sense that God is doing something in Spring Creek and Elko in our day and time. That that he is... He's up to something. I mean, his word is clear. Let me just remind you of these, these two great verses. First Timothy 2, 3, and 4. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. You want to know what God's will is? There it is. He wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. And then 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, some people think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed, but wants everyone to repent. What is God's will? For people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus in Matthew 28, verse 19 says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations. And a disciple is simply someone who follows, who knows Jesus Christ and who's growing in Jesus Christ. Somebody who, who comes to know him and then grows in him. So, folks, what I want you to know is that God is already at work. I mean, last fall, back in September, our church staff met and we began to pray. What, what would God be, have us do in 2020? What would be the emphasis that we could really uh, share with our church family? What, what is it God wants us to do? Not what we're going to plan and ask God to bless us, but what does God want us to do? And, and God just laid on our heart this idea of who's your one. That every one of us begin to allow God to impress us with the name of one person that we're going to pray for, that we're going to seek to reach during the next 365 days. Who's your one? Uh, he laid that on the heart of your church leadership and, and uh, this task of devoting all of 2020 to reach your one. Um, and for many of you, he's laid it on your heart already to begin praying. There are over almost 100 names on that hall of one out there, right outside that door, of people that you're praying for that can find Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior sometime during this, this, coming, during this year. He's laid it on your heart and he's inviting you now to join him as he begins to work in their life, in the life of your one. That's going to require some adjustment, folks. But God is about to intervene, folks, in the lives of lots of people that you and I know. He's going to begin drawing them to himself. Why do I know that? Because you're praying for them. And when we pray, it sends God into the battlefield to fight against Satan, to get Satan to release them so that they might find the truth of what Jesus Christ is all about. And, and he wants to use you as his instrument. But folks, if you are self-centered, here's how you're going to respond, okay? Oh, I, I don't know enough to share with somebody about Jesus Christ. I, 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 I'm not the right person. I, I don't think I'm able enough to do that and blah, 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 blah. Okay? I mean, think about it. Do you see what's happening? When the focus is on self, we come up with this whole list of excuses as to why he's got the wrong person to do what he wants to do. 
But don't be self-centered. Be God-centered. We need God's perspective. God knows you can't do it, okay? But he wants to do it through you. And he wants you to come alongside of him that he can work, work through you. And so as you begin to pray for that one, God's laid it on your heart. And there's going to be an invitation because they're going to start asking questions. And that's an invitation for you to join him in what he's doing. That's a God-centered approach. See, God's work at, at Calvary Baptist Church in the year 2020 doesn't just stop, folks, with who's your one. We're going to continue to pray for every person in this community for God's intervention in the lives of each and every person. Uh, some of you remember all the way back to 2012. That was a thousand years ago. 2012. We did something here at Calvary Baptist Church that we called Pray for Elko. You remember that? Where we hung doorknob hangers on every single house in Elko that simply said, Elko, we want to pray for you. And it gave them a phone number or a, a, a internet uh, a place where they could send us prayer requests. And then we spent time praying for all the requests that came in. And we got a good number of prayers from people saying, pray for me in this situation, that situation, so forth. But we're going to do it again. We're going to do it again. You'll hear more about this in the days ahead, but two weeks before Easter, we're going to blanket Elko. And if we've got enough people who help us, we can do Spring Creek as well. We're going to just hang a simple doorknob hanger on every single door in Elko and just say, we want to pray for you. Call this number, go to this website, give us your prayer request. And then the week before Easter, we're going to pray over and over and over again for these requests. Because God is not willing for any to perish. God wants all men to be saved and to understand the truth. See, we believe that praying for Elko, for Spring Creek, brings God onto the battlefield for the souls of lost people in our community. And, and again, God is not willing for any to perish. So we want to join God in what he wants to do in our community. Let me conclude real quickly with these thoughts. Because when God wants to do something, <clears throat> he always takes the initiative, okay? He doesn't wait to, to see if we're wanting to do something with him. But after he's taken the initiative, he does come. And he waits until we respond to him. And again, that response is going to call for, for some adjustments in our life. It's going to call for a surrender of our will to his will in our life, to make ourselves available to him. And so as we surrender ourselves to God, he leads us. He'll lead us through prayer. He'll lead us through Bible. He'll lead us through circumstances. He'll lead us through the advice of other godly people. Now, maybe you say, well, that all sounds real well and good, but I like flesh and blood. Give me a, a flesh and blood person that I can understand this idea of discovering and doing God's will. Well, let me take you back to somebody that we've mentioned from time to time, George Mueller. Great man of faith in 19th century England. Um, and And... I guess he was 18th century. Well, it doesn't matter, okay? He lived in England way, like, way back ago. But he was, uh, first of all, he was a German and came to pastor in England. And God began to challenge him about the, the, just the, the lethargy 
of Christianity in England, that it just was dying. And he thought, you know, what I want is I would like for God to do something that could only be done by God, that I could point to and say, this is God at work. It's not anybody doing anything. This is God at work. So he, he, he really thought, what I need to do is I need to pray that God would do something so miraculous that only God could do it. And so part of what he did was he started an orphanage for uh, the children. England at that time, London especially, was overrun with street kids that had no parents. And, and, um, and so he started an orphanage for that. But here's the thing. Mueller never, ever, ever begged for money. He never went out and solicited, we're going to set up a foundation and you can give to the orphanage. And we're going to... He never did that. In fact, he never let anybody know that the orphanages had needs. The only person he ever talked to about that the orphanage needs heat, the orphanage needs food, the orphanage needs blankets, he talked to God. And he prayed and he prayed and he prayed. And time after time after time, God answered prayers in miraculous ways, providing for the needs of those orphans. And by the time that Mueller died, he was running four different orphanages that would a capacity of about 2,000 kids. And during his lifetime, he impacted the life of 10,000 children. And he collected and distributed to these orphanages over 8,000 million dollars and he never asked a person for a dime but he prayed and God provided and God provided and God provided listen to listen to what he said I mean you think well man he must have gotten rich himself well at the age of 93 when he died his personal property was valued at about 800 dollars okay but God provided for his needs from his writings we can learn a great deal about how he knew and how he did the will of God. I want you to listen to these things. First of all, Mueller said this, I seek at the beginning to set my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. Now that right there is part of our problems, okay? We pray for God's will, but we're kind of fudging one way or the other. We want this to kind of happen. Uh, You know, I'm praying, oh God, show me your will, but... Well, it sure would be nice if it went this way. Here's what Mueller concluded. He says, nine-tenths of the trouble with people generally is just here. Nine-tenths of the difficulties are overcome when our hearts are ready to do the knowledge of what his will is. In other words, you and I need to, if we're going to seek God's will, we don't need to have a pony in this race. We need to say, okay, God, if it's this way, okay. If it's that way, okay. I just want your will. Secondly, he says, I've emptied my heart of all preconceived ideas of what I think God's will should be. And I'm going to leave the results to him. And and he says, I don't leave the results to feelings or impressions. I'm just going, well, I feel this is kind of the way. He said, to do so, I make myself liable to great delusion. So in other words, don't go with your gut. Okay. That's not how you find God's will. Third, he said, I seek the will of the Spirit of God through or in connection with the Word of God. The Spirit and the Word must be combined. If I look to the Spirit alone 
Without the word, I lay myself open to great delusion also. If the Holy Spirit guides us at all, he will do it according to the scriptures and never contrary to them. Next, I take into account providential circumstances. These often plainly indicate God's will in connection with his word and spirit. I ask God in prayer to reveal his will to me aright. And so then he concludes really with three key elements in discovering God's will. Thus, he said, and this is the number one, I, through prayer to God, and number two, the study of the word, and number three, reflection, I come to a deliberate judgment according to the best of my ability and knowledge. And if my mind is thus at peace and continues so, after two or three more petitions, I proceed accordingly. So let me summarize real quickly the guidance that Mueller gives. He says, first, we've got to make sure that our will is negative. I mean, it's just, it's not even there, okay? That we have no will of our own in regard to the issue. We, we've got to seek to get to the point where we want God's will only. Uh, we've got to avoid deluding ourselves by uh, basing our decisions on our feelings, on our gut, on these kind of impressions that... And, and he also says, and this is so important, he doesn't rely on the Holy Spirit alone. But he makes sure it lines up with the Word of God. Check to make sure that... The Word of God and the Holy Spirit align together. So he says we use prayer, we use Bible study, we use reflection um, to find that that lasting peace about a decision or direction that that we're going. This then is is what I would call a God-centered approach. Because we're seeking to do and discovering to do God's will. And we've got to continue to ask ourselves, what is the center of our heart? If you're going to discover and do God's will, God's got to be the center. It can't be self. It's got, to be, it's got to be centered in God. Staying centered in God will assure us that we have God's power in what we're doing and it's, and it's going to result in God receiving the glory and, and not ourselves. Um, every one of our lives needs to be centered in God. That is absolutely the most important thing. If you're going to know God's will, center yourself in God. We're going to talk about more about this in the weeks ahead. Let me bow and lead us in prayer. Father, it's so easy for us to get off into all sorts of tangents. We think that we know best. And we've got it all figured out so many times. But we know that when we center in ourselves, it leads to disaster. Teach us that life is not about us, but it's all about you. I pray, Father, that you would center us in you and in you alone. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if Jesus Christ is not center of your life, he's not your Savior, he's not your Lord, this would be a great day to do that. You could just simply say, Dear Jesus, I need you in my life. I recognize that I am a sinner. I am cut off from you because of the wrong decisions that I've made. And I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to come into my life. I want to turn and I want to go in a brand new direction. Thank you that you came to this earth and you died for me. And that you rose again. Thank you that you've given to me the promise of eternal life. 
Father, thank you that you love us. In your name we pray. Amen.